we constantly move. Here I am moving with my dog as we go on a little run. But over time, we seem to be getting better at our movements. From picking up coffee cups to kicking soccer balls, we seem to be learning. Professor Alea Ahmed studies movement learning, or as we call it, motor learning. Mm -hmm. I direct the neuromechanics lab here at the University of Colorado Boulder. In this episode, you'll hear about your subconscious mind subverting your conscious mind and controlling your movements. How stroke patients can temporarily be cured by a treadmill. We'll explain why impulsive people might have impulsive movements and the spice of punishment in violin training. I'm Bishop Sand. This is SIFT. This episode is divided into three parts. This is part one, the subconscious. We began with a study about movement errors. Here again is Professor Ahmed. Wow. People um, come into the lab and make reaching movements while they're holding onto this handle of a robotic arm. This essentially is the, is the robotic arm. Yeah, so I'm just looking at this. I mean, it looks like a little bit like a torture device, to be honest with you. <laughs> essentially, it's like playing a video game. So they hold on to the handle, and with the handle, they control a cursor on a screen. For example, if you move your hand up, the cursor moves up. Move your hand down, the cursor goes down. But then the researchers throw in a twist. Literally, a twist. The mouse cursor moves at an angle from what it should normally move. It's called a visual motor rotation. And this, of course, throws people off. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, people are making errors, and they gradually learn, I need to reach 30 degrees counterclockwise so I can reach straight. And then when you take away that perturbation, they gradually unlearn it. It's not like on-off or anything. And the fact that it took so long for subjects to learn it and then unlearn it suggests that the learning is subconscious. Mm -hmm, Exactly. But here's where it gets interesting. Researchers called people in, got them used to the robotic arm, with up going up and down going down, but then they told them, Look, there's going to be a rotation, and uh, we want you to just reach 30 degrees counterclockwise. And so, as expected, once the rotation came on, they would reach. And they hit their target. It was a very explicit strategy. Already adjusting for this weird rotation. But what was strange was that gradually their error started to drift. In other words, their accuracy changed. Even though there's this explicit strategy and they know that they're correcting and they see no error, your brain is noticing that there's this weird difference between how your arm is moving and how the cursor is moving. And it adapts to that, even though you're already hitting the target. And so it's like there's an explicit and an implicit process. And even though there is no error, that implicit process is still ongoing, just because there's a mismatch between your cursor and your hands. And so that is evidence to us that it's kind of beneath cognitive intervention. big question in motor learning is how much does the brain allow itself to learn from error? So say you get a large error. Yeah. 
So how do you assign credit for that error? Is the error me, so I should change what I do and I should change my model of the world? Or is the error not due to something that I can control and I should just keep on doing what I was doing? Well, one way to investigate this is to set people up on a split belt treadmill. That's a treadmill where there's two belts, one for each foot, and they can be controlled independently. So initially the belts are tied, they, they're moving at the same speed, and then all of a sudden one of the belts starts moving at a different speed. And that totally screws everybody up. When that I can imagine what I would do. I would, I would probably like trip or stumble and it would be very awkward. I would feel very strange on that. There's yeah. videos of people doing this, and I'll put the link in the description and on the website, sifpodcast.com. But what's interesting is that eventually, after like a, a few minutes or so, you are able to walk symmetrically. You kind of plateau to a very semi-normal gait pattern. Somehow you're able to adapt to the fact that one belt is moving more slowly than the other. And then when people get used to walking with these out-of-sync belts, scientists switch the belts back to normal, and people gradually readjust to their normal stride. Now... This gets really interesting when scientists bring in stroke patients for this procedure. You see, some stroke patients walk asymmetrically. But after going through this procedure where they speed up one belt and then slow it back down to normal, these stroke patients walk more symmetrically. Somehow you're getting them to notice the error. By exaggerating the error, this is helping them correct it, actually. What's interesting is that after they've learned, and it seems like they have improved their symmetry, now if you take them off the treadmill and you have them walk what we call overground, just regular, it goes away. And so this comes to this question of, when the brain sees an error, what does it think caused the error? And that eventually dictates whether you take that learning with you or whether you leave it with the device. So if you think the error is due to the device, then once you leave the device, you're not going to keep on correcting for the error that you think is no longer there. If you think the error is due to yourself, then any adaptation that you made, you will take with you. So this now leads us to a very interesting explanation of why a certain group of people are so good at learning new motor skills. This group of people called children. So, so kids. So kids transfer better. You see, their subconscious is constantly blaming themselves for all of the error. So they're constantly revising and constantly open to new motor learning. Exactly. Much more so than an old person would be. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. Part two, movement decisions. So far we've discussed how subconscious your motor learning really is, and how a simple judgment of whether you're to blame or whether the environment's to blame can open you up to new learning. But let's say that you're open to learning a new movement. Let's say that you realize it's you that caused the error, and you want to do something about it. You start trying things out, and you get positive or negative feedback. Or in other words, 
a reward or punishment. And surprisingly, penalty is better than reward. You learn faster with penalty compared to reward. So why is this the case? <laughs> yeah, uh, these are the questions I love. To answer this, we have to take a step back and think about every movement we make as a decision among all possible movements you could make. So for instance, say you're just picking up a coffee cup. There's lots of ways in which you can do that. Lots of forces you can change. Lots of ways you can approach this movement. And every option has a utility, and you choose the option that has the greatest utility. And if you choose a movement, consciously or not, and are punished for it... You just are significantly more sensitive to losses compared to equivalent gains. A punishment or loss in the situation might be something like bringing up your cup too quickly and hitting your tooth. Ow. You really, really hate to lose. You want to avoid that loss. So you'll learn to choose a different movement next time much more quickly. Mm -hmm, exactly. So it, it, it's a, just a stronger driving signal. But just to complicate this even further, there was another study that brought people back after reward and punishment, and they found that the people that were rewarded did better than the people who were punished. It's only two studies. I think we're just starting to um, learn about how reward and penalties influence, and, and other cognitive strategies can influence the motor learning. But there's a lot of interesting questions. But what's novel here, and probably the most interesting thing about this whole idea of reward and punishment, is that movements are considered decisions. You see, Professor Ahmed thinks there is a deep connection between these decisions we make and the movements that we make. For example, if you are a gambler, you're risk-seeking and economic decisions, does it say something about how risky you are in your movements? Impulsive actions and impulsive decisions also seem to be connected. Right, exactly. An impulsive decision is taking the smaller, immediate reward right now, instead of a larger reward that you'd have to wait for. But then you can also look at how impulsive their movements are, how vigorous their movements are, how fast they are, and there's a correlation between how fast their eye movements are and their impulsivity in these decision-making tasks. So what's fascinating to me is that, yes, you can, if you look at the brain, you can see how these, the circuits may be intertwined and related. This is part three, Spicy Punishment. We've taken a look at what drives our motor learning. These results are great, but they've been fairly limited to basic reaching movements. I wanted to know if this kind of learning had any traction in the real world. So I went to see this man. I hear people call me Yin Feng Chen. And ask him what his experiences were with motor learning. I'll see. I'm a professional violinist. My wife and I, we, we run a high standard music school called Flat Iron Strings Academy in Boulder.
Okay, so during that play right there, there's a tiny little stumble I, I heard. Like That's just... my brain trying to catch up with uh, what's next. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yes. But there are certain mistakes are something uh, that's reoccurring over and over, and you start to find a pattern, and you know these are your weak links. When you're teaching and you correct someone, it's like this little punishment. Do you see that those punishments help? Uh, well, in my own teaching right now, uh, punishment, uh, emotional punishment, <laughs> uh, well, no physical punishment, especially in this country. <laughs> Sometimes I do want them to feel bad about what they've done. Uh, not maliciously, yeah. but in a, um, in a way I want them to realize something so they can understand the cause of the mistake. So I think the punishment part of it, it's uh, very useful. It's almost like a spice, a unique exotic spice. You've got to use it in the right dosage and uh, correctly. But overall, for uh, most people, it works better through rewards. You really hit something, a high note, difficult chord, or something that's very difficult. There is a instant satisfaction. It feels great. It, you feel so happy, everything's beautiful in the world for like a week. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And finally, in the realm of violin playing, it seems like people's movement decisions and the decisions that they make in everyday life are somewhat linked. Uh, that's just human nature, I think. You know, some people's uh, you can tell they are they are very careful people. They they plan things. Things are always in order yeah. for them, uh, and that the way they play tend to be like that. Uh, very clean, very technical. Uh, some people are. Uh, considered very smooth, yeah. you know. Some people are a little clumsy, <laughs> yeah. and the, and the age can change too. Yeah. At a certain age, then things are different. Yeah. Um, I think subconsciousness is what what's uh, really controlling everything we do. Even though um, you are coming from the same teacher and uh, approaches everything exactly the same way, each person if you really tap into their own uniqueness, which is a much harder part, I think, yeah. um, they should come out very differently. That's it for this episode of SIFT. You can help support the show by simply leaving a review, please. Every review helps to get the show into more ears. For more Sift, you can go to siftpodcast.com, prx.org, or wherever you find podcasts. I'm Bishop Sand. Thanks for listening.